You're listening to Humans in Tech. Our podcast explores today's most transformative technology and the trends of tomorrow, bringing together the brightest minds in and outside of our industry. We unpack what's new in physical access, identity verification, cybersecurity, and IoT ecosystems. We reach beyond the physical world, discuss our digital transformation as a species, and dive into the emerging digital experience. Join us on our journey as we discover just how connected the future will be and how we will fit into that picture. Your host is Lee Dow, VP of Global Marketing at Identive. Welcome to Humans in Tech, and thank you for tuning in. Today in our innovation series and technology trends, we're talking with Prachi Kale about one of my favorite topics, design thinking. Prachi is an entrepreneur and multidisciplinary industry professional with an impressive 17-year career spanning four unique areas, cybersecurity and tech, business strategy, diversity and inclusion, and executive coaching. Now, as the co-founder of Think Design Cyber, a founding executive fellow of Cyber Theory Institute and a woman of color, she has weaved all of her experiences to help advance the cybersecurity industry. Prachi, thank you so much for being here today to talk about your vast experience in cybersecurity, specifically design thinking for cybersecurity. My pleasure, Lee. Your resume is so very impressive. Uh, mm -hmm. You have a master's degree in bioinformatics from George Washington University, which is you know, all about building tech for biological research. Yeah. You've, you've written code, conducted scientific experiments on HIV viruses. You did PCR tests. <laughs> yeah, those. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, Think invasive viruses, the pandemic, and cybersecurity. So tell us more about that journey, because those are a lot of dots that maybe most people would not have connected. Yeah, and I'm great. You know, I'm, I'm glad you prefaced it with that, but I, I am an obsessive dot connector by nature, <laughs> and it served me very well. Um, and, and I have to say, my master's program was one of the most meaningful learning experiences in my life, and it really set the foundation for... Uh, my design thinking mindset and, you know, the foundation for, for the work that we're doing at Think Design Cyber. And for the benefit of the listeners, bioinformatics blends biology, math, computer science, and physics to create those software solutions. And my focus of study was the correlation of human genome. It's really around, you know, the human genome project that was going on at the time um, and its correlation with infectious diseases and specifically HIV viruses that's where I had to do a lot of these tests, um, a lot of these studying around virology. Uh, so I took classes both in the med school and engineering school. And we first had to learn about the biology of the human body, right? And how the virus at the time, uh, you know, based on the knowledge that was available at the time, interacted with our body. And what was mind blowing to me at the time was that the virus literally changes our DNA in the way that it operates inside, you know, the host, like a human body once it infects it, right? And so understanding how it works before we even embarked upon the possibility of doing any kind of computational solution for it was just, um, was just, uh, you know, amazing. And um, the highlight of this journey, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll say is, was working at NIH on the follow-up of the Human Genome Project. It had just concluded, I believe in 2003. And, uh, it was widely celebrated as a feat of biological research about decoding the human DNA. But I always presented as saying it was one of the biggest wins in computational science um, because it pushed the envelope of not only, you know, software solutioning, computational research, 
and you know informational uh, management theories really is what I call it. It was like one of the largest databases in the in the world at the time. Um, it really pushed people to come together, lead, strategize, and collaborate. And to watch that happen so closely was was a true true blessing. And um, I'll highlight three learnings that I wanted to share with the audience here today. Was was you know is is very similar has very you know parallels to cyber. Uh, number one was one computational scientist, you know, saw that uh, saw the the challenge and said, "This and I, I kid you not, this is this is print, you know, printed somewhere. Um, people can find the paper." But he said, "This effort is like working with both hands tied behind, blindfolded, and in a vacuum." <laughs> now, who doesn't say that in cybersecurity today? Right, right, right. right. <laughs> the and then all of us, all of us who sign up for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Yes, but all of us are mission-driven, right? Mm -hmm. Ambitious, brilliant, committed people who want to make us the world a safer place, right? So the problem is highly complex but solvable if all components are addressed in it. The second one was distinguishing the signal from the noise. This is how biologists approach solutioning versus, uh, not versus, yes, and uh, detecting anomalies to make accurate interpretation, and that's how us computer scientists tend to approach problem, right? What's my anomaly? Forget mm -hmm. all the all the stuff that looks okay. You know, blending both of that was a big one, big approach sort of blending that happened in the Human Genome Project, which again, today in cyber is very relevant. And the last and the most important point that is near and dear to my heart is, I saw the power of empowering people to lead, strategize and collaborate. I mean, I cannot emphasize that enough and I feel like it is so lost in this whole cyber game today. Um, it's just unacceptable to me, but I think those were the three, three main things I'd like to highlight. I'm really interested in your degree. I love the multifaceted approach um, that yes. that you you have to take to study that. I just finished um, in August a week long uh, course at the Stanford Graduate School of Business around uh -huh. pro product innovation. And yeah. what I learned was they um, they have a D school there, and they yes. they have all of their students, regardless of their program discipline, attend that school. It's the only school at the university that all students have to yes. attend and and yes. collaborate and and yep. practice design thinking and learn that skill. Um, yep. And I just think that's so mission critical to our ability to find uh, solutions and solutions that have multiple points of view. Um, yeah. And and, yep. you know, take into account diversity equations and things like that. So I was really impressed by that. Yeah, absolutely. In, in systems here, it's called like wicked problems, right? They have all of these, you know, the big SDG goals that are out there and, you know, the United Nations that put out there are really wicked problems, poverty, hunger, right? Mm -hmm. Cybersecurity is another one, gender diversity, all of these. They don't have one right way of doing it, but um, it's a large problem that has to then be, get broken down. So absolutely, the D school is is a big philosophy of design that we incorporate into the work. But we also look at the East Coast School of Design, uh, which really focuses on the industrial um, solutioning side of things. So think assembly lines and creating, you know, scaling products and um, and and things like that. Right. Okay. I I'm not as familiar with that. I'll definitely look into it though. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Uh, so how did is that how you got into cybersecurity? Is it because so many of the experiences you've had in your background are applicable? Uh, you know, I, I, I like I said, I'm an obsessive dot connector. So I kind of am a design thinker, too. I solve my personal problems using design thinking, which is which is, you know, just a habit of mine. Mm -hmm. But my love affair, as I say it, with cyber started at, when I was 16 years old. 
I had managed to grab, you know, a book on ethical hiking. I think it was at a library somewhere. Um, and it really appealed to my teenage rebellious nature. And <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, I can get into other people's computers sitting at home, like at my desk or my bed. Um, and that was that was amazing. And I literally gobbled up the book and only to realize later that if this fell into malicious, you know, uh, people with malicious intent, how bad it can be. And fast forward through many work experiences, you know, in consulting as well as in the industry, um, I'm happy to declare it's still, you know, active and, you know, we're steady relationship going on, but that work experience has informed, um, you know, I think design cyber and the work we're doing there. Well, and it's and, definitely uh, a topic, right, that is, is um, yeah. in a, an area of practices not going away and is only continuing to increase, right, mm-hmm. as an mm-hmm. a important issue. What's your biggest yeah. focus in the industry? Yeah, uh, the biggest focus actually came out of the experiences, you know, some of, you know, a lot of the data we've collected and my desire to create solutions that don't exist before. And at Think Design Cyber, we focus on problems in cybersecurity that technology alone could not solve, right? There are so many good technology solutions out there and yet reach rates are high, right? Yet there is so much time, money and resource. And some of the some of the top issues that, you know, our audiences and our clients voice are burn and churn, you know, the work-life conflict issue, um, wasted time and money. Uh, the big one is ant- the sense of antagonism. This is within the corporate environment mostly. Um, and, you know, feeling siloed, right? And feeling ill-equipped to handle all these issues. And when we started looking at this, right, we're just design thinking. We're just like, what is happening? And we realized that these are symptoms of deeper problems. And when we, when we really, you know, lifted up the hood and started looking at it, um, we realize that the problems won't have to do with the technology that is in question or the threats and attacks. It was really around um, methods and people in cybersecurity. And I simplified by you know using a stoplight analogy, um, red, amber, green. The red is really the methods and people obscured behind all of the technology that is available and the focus on the threats and attacks. And when I say methods, I mean... Uh, processes, right, controls, frameworks, lines of defense and such. And then we dug into that a little bit more and we realized they were borrowed from other disciplines, right? Cyber evolved not as a formal discipline, but just like borrowed from here and there once it came out of the, you know, the network Mm -hmm. hole. (laughs) Right. And um, and a lot of these these uh, these methods, an example would be, you know, lines of defense in the risk management space is really unsuitable, right? Rhymes of defense is about segregation of duties. You're putting three teams. Yeah, you really have three big lines, right? The front line, the cent, you know, the second line, and the third line, the audit. The second line is typically risk management. Front line is business and IT. In my experience and my colleagues' experiences, where that created so much antagonism and a sense of mistrust that people were were afraid to collaborate beyond, you know, across those lines. Oh, 100%. I had an employer who I will not name names, but um, (laughs) I remember going through a um, factory audit and uh, a global factory audit. And I can remember, Mm -hmm. um, I can remember the the lead manager um, on the, on the factory side, you know, Mm -hmm. when we would get on the phone with the, with the internal auditing team and tell all of us, we weren't allowed to speak or say anything. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But think about this, right? In but lines of defense were again inspired from military or sports. Mm-hmm. Both 
in both situations, there are rules of engagement that are, you know, mostly followed, right? Right. In cybersecurity, there are no rules of engagement. And what mm-hmm. you're trying to do is create opposing teams in the same organization that need to work together to to uh, tackle an adversary that is outside the environment, aside from insider risk, right? right. That's another one, right? And that blows people's mind when I when I tell them, they're like, oh my God, I never looked at it this way. And I said, yes, what if I take all three of you, or this was just my idea at the time in which we've translated into our workshops is get you out of your office, let's put you in a room. And these are again, brilliant problem solving people, right? Technical and, and just amazing people to be around. How, how quickly could you come up with a solution for your company if you weren't fighting across those lines? And, and most of my effort has gone into building those stakeholder relationships across lines and coaching other people in cybersecurity how to do that so their initiatives and the company's critical initiatives could move forward, right? And the cyber people are not no people anymore. I really like so, your concept of design thinking being about designing solutions that consider the human behavior pattern, not just the technology. Yep. I love yep. that. And, um, the, and the methods, right? The mm-hmm. methods really box people in. If I'm supposed to operate in an environment like this, I can't create. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's like with all this clutter, all this noise, you're restricting me, boxing my thinking. The conformist nature of cybersecurity starts to really become you know, prevalent in that. So that really um, opened our minds around what you know those problems were. And the amber light, you know, just before I conclude this point is, the technology, there are some amazing technical solutions out there, right? But again, it requires leadership and strategy to really pull them together and identify in context of your, you know, one's organization, what is required, right? And and cybersecurity people are not traditionally coached to do, do that. They're coached, you know, as specialists, mm-hmm. right? They're trained as specialists in a very technical way, and then they don't learn those uh skills or they do learn those skills when it's very late and and that middle management and and early career uh, band of employees really lose out on this uh, opportunity, right? So the technology solutions are out there, the integration of them or interoperability, if I call it, like think about a plane, right? If Airbus or Boeing is manufacturing a plane, they source parts from different vendors, but somehow the plane takes off, works all, lands, right? It's a great experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not happening in cyber either. So what is going on there? And so those are like our three main focus areas. Um, and then the green light is what I say, where I say is um, all the attention and energy is being focused is the discussion and the offensive and defensive posture around the threats and attacks. And I'm not saying that has to be eliminated. What I'm saying is when 100% of your resources, time, energy, focus goes there, the red and the amber light is what is going to get ignored. And But unless we solve those, no matter how many technical solutions are out there, it's not going to solve cybersecurity. One of the things that you said that really resonates with me is on the problem solving. Um, yeah. I think that uh, I think our schools, especially you know K through twelve, are getting better at teaching yes. teaching students to solve problems together. Yes, um, yes. you know, and collaborate on problem solving. I know for me, it sounds like we have somewhat similar personalities. Um, one of my favorite things to do is to be given some hairy problems to solve and, um, especially in like digital transformation and those kinds of things. And, um, one of the things that I've learned about my own personality, in fact, is if you handed me an organization that was running perfectly perfect, I'd probably break something just to fix it. (laughs) I am like that too. Operations for me is not, it's it's not a thing. Exactly. Don't, same. Not that I'm, I'm attracted to chaos, but I like to solve 
problems or see things that don't exist, right? Or between the lines. That kind of, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. I'm ex- the exact same way. Um, so you talking about problem solving <laughs> and collaborating on that really resonates with me. Um, so given that, you know, how did you get involved with design thinking specifically for cybersecurity? Because there's surely um, a lot of yeah. design thinking and problem solving in that equation. It is. And you know what was interesting? I didn't truly think about formalizing this in a thing design cyber way until I met my co-founder, Brian Barnier. And he, by the way, is an icon, a veteran in the cybersecurity and risk management space, um, financial. He's an economist as well, done a lot of good um, work in cybersecurity and all of that. So anyway, so when we met, we met through a networking and we started talking and both of us had similar observations, much like you and I. (laughs) And suddenly we both realized, oh, we're using the same approach to look at this. And, you know, we're like, he said, are you an engineer by training? And I said, yes. And he said, I am too. And how are you, you know, what are you thinking? And I said, design thinking. And then that got us talking. And what we suddenly realized was design thinking has been formally applied in so many industries, never in cyber. Right? Really? Within a company, when we talk to people, we, go, we ask them to go check out, does your company have an innovation lab? Yes. Does it use design thinking to solve, you know, create new products and services? Yes. Do they look at humans? Yes. <laughs> do they do that for cyber? No. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. Right? Yeah. And not only that, when they're embarking on a new initiative, right, something that's completely new, new product, they set up their people for success. They give them training. People are trained for sales. People are trained for customer service. People are trained technically, right? Mm-hmm. When where does that happen in cybersecurity? It doesn't. Technology, yes. Technical skills, yes. Lots of CISM, CISSP, and you know litany of other certifications. But truly, that for innovation purpose as a process in cyber organizations doesn't exist. You know, you um, that's the second reference we've had we did today about economists. We had another guest that we recorded earlier today who is an economist uh-huh. working in an economist by training, by education, working in cybersecurity. My undergraduate degrees are geopolitical strategy. So certainly like, you know, oh, econ- wow. economics and geopolitical strategy, obviously uh, desperately need design thinking um, yes. and people who can understand those, you know, macro and micro elements. Um, and I think cybersecurity is like that too. You really need to be able to um, think big and strategically, um, but you also need to understand um, yes. You know, the, the elements that add up to an equation, like to, to solve Absolutely. a problem. Absolutely, at all levels, at all levels, right? Not only when you're a CISO or the next level down. Um, and I think that is a huge opportunity. And, you know, after meeting Brian, we ended up writing a paper, uh, which, uh, paper, of course, I come from a master's background, <laughs> but um, it, it won Article of the Year Award in 2020. It's called Cybersecurity, the Endgame. And that's where we, ident- you know, defined all of these method and people issues that we talked about. We, uh, ter- you know, use the term structural flaws. It's a very, uh, it's a common term used in systems thinking to talk about flaws that are designed in, you know, think about flaws in the foundation of your home, right? So no amount of interior design is going to help you fix that unless you actually fix the structural flaws. So lines of defense, for example, we, we, um, categorized it under structural flaw. And that was very well received by people. And, you know, then I happened to meet John Kindervog, who is the creator of Zero Trust. Unlike many people who think Zero Trust was actually created by some professional organization, it wasn't. It was one person's, you know, brainchild. Um, and he talks about, you know, his Zero Trust strategy um, 
which has been interpreted many different ways, you know, has turned into a gimmick, whatever. But you know, his concept, which we call authentic zero trust, largely leverages design principles. And it's challenging for people because it's counterintuitive in nature, because it's exactly asking you to take your focus off the threats and attacks and look inward and start that journey, which is also very parallel to coaching. Think about driving mm -hmm. a people change. You've got to start look inward, right, to draw to to create any outward change in your life in your career. And people change is not easy, <laughs> and it isn't easy. Yeah. Nope. And so, yeah. Fast forward, we ended up, you know, partnering. So there is a design thinking course coming out in November on the CyberEd.io site. We have outcomes accelerator workshops. You know, as I mentioned before, we work with our clients. You know, focusing on a lot of the design thinking process itself for their problems. And then I was very happy to create a program uh, for introverted cyber professionals, transforming them into business leaders, which I neglected to, to mention as a point in the people issue. 60% of cyber workforce identifies as introverts. And oh, that doesn't surprise me time. at all. Yeah. That no. doesn't surprise and the scope me. of that work has expanded. They literally have to go now talk in, in meetings, drive change, as you said, organizational change, leadership, speak in board meetings, management committee meetings. Um, are they, and, and um, that's a task. Are they yeah. also highly risk adverse with respect to change? So um, I would think people who work in cybersecurity, you know, would be very risk adverse just by nature. Um, I, I don't attribute it to the introversion. I think it's more of the conformism. We've always done it this way. So why do we need to change it? Yeah. Okay. Right. So, so I wouldn't attribute it being that being the reason, but yes, I largely say it's conformism, right? Um, this is how it's been done. Why do we need to change it? It's worked so far or it hasn't worked, but there's no other way. So that box thinking um, is sometimes it was, um, you know, blocks people from looking at out of the box solutions. But once you sort of loosen them up and get them, you know, <laughs> out of that mode, uh -huh. it, you really start to see some nice ideas flowing. And, and that's just very rewarding. What are the main principles of design thinking? Because I think most people, you know, they hear that, but they don't really know what it means. Yes. So oversimplified version, right, and applicable to tech and non-tech prob uh, problems, as well as, like I said, yeah, personal uh, transformation as well. But um, five main principles. Number one is problem framing. And this is by far for me, the most important step in the process is framing the problem in the right way and framing it in multiple different ways um, before you actually go to solve it. And this is a very engaging process that I go through with all our clients um, in, in framing this problem several different ways, taking all aspects into consideration. And many times a client will wake up and say, I don't think this is a technology problem. We've been having these failed implementations. A, I admit that my solution wasn't a stable in my environment. And secondly, I think it's a people issue and more people. It was a collaboration issue or a trust issue. So we started to dig deeper, right? We start asking some critical thinking questions. We ask some, you know, put some systems principles in there. Um, it really starts to uncover the real problems as we call it, right? So that problem framing step is really important. Uh, number two is challenging norms and assumptions. It's around reframing the norms and assumptions that led to the problem in the first place. Number three is um, understanding how it works. Like similar to the human genome project in my master's work, I really had to understand how the human body worked. If the, you know, when the virus was in the body, um, the reaction, the suppression, the you know elevation of certain different 
mechanisms in the body and so that when you're solving for it, you understand the context in which the problem has to be solved. Uh, design and implement with speed and obviously gathering feedback as you're doing that in an iterative format. And uh, number five is continual improvement. Um, again, you get the feedback, you go back and make changes. So in a very oversimplified way of five principles, you can, the first three problem framing, challenging norms and assumptions and how it works can be nonlinear. I love the idea of the problem framing. Um, so that class that I referenced earlier, uh, one of the very yes. first sessions that we did was um, around design thinking. And mm -hmm. one of the things that uh, we, we went out and we did um, surveys uh, with yeah. just random people <laughs> um, at a mall. Yes. And yeah. um, we were tasked with, each group was tasked with coming back um, and agreeing on the problem to be solved. And yeah. um, it was so interesting to see how how many of us missed solving a real mm -hmm. problem, um, mm -hmm. how many of us maybe found the problem, but then the solution had nothing to do with the problem. Um, exactly. And having somebody who really understands those pillars and facilitate you through that process is really important because it's super easy to take yourselves down the wrong path. Absolutely. And you really need someone to sort of rein, rein that in. And like you said, um, it's very easy to get, you know, go down the wrong path. But sometimes, you know, that is also the process. So one should give themselves, um, give themselves the time to do that. So, you know, what role does data then play when applying design thinking in cybersecurity? Data is always playing a critical role. <laughs> but, you know, in a, in a short, short answer would be, for me, data is a living, breathing organism, right? Seeing it in, used in the context of, you know, my past experiences, of course, um, it really has to be used and applied in the right context. And for cybersecurity, I really talk about the data that you have to protect, right? From uh, any any security strategy you're, you're applying, what data am I supposed to protect? And the second, the data that is used to protect that data that you want to protect. And so um, it's not just one-sided view to look at both. At Identiv, we take a lot of pride in solving customer problems with the customer at the center. And as we've already discussed, mm -hmm. it's even with all that data, sometimes it's really hard to frame the problem that you're trying to yeah. solve and come yeah. up with a, a solution that, that is really um, relevant and beneficial for a customer. Explain how design thinking is critical to the design and success of products in cybersecurity. Oh, it's absolutely imperative. And it's... Um, you know, I did a podcast for um, actually specifically geared to cyber vendors on cybersecurity unplugged several months ago. And we really talked about the importance of vendors in this ecosystem, right? I mean, all of you all are putting so much, you know, brain power and even emotional commitment into, you know, providing solutions for the industry. Um, but I think what is also people need to appreciate that, but despite all of these amazing solutions being there, we are yet to solve or make cybersecurity reliable, right? And cyber careers rewarding. So what can the vendors do when they're creating those products? Not only think about the end user. Now your end user could be, you know, a SOC or it could be, you know, an anti-phishing software or something would directly impact, you know, a person sitting in a cubicle, but to really look at the, the whole breadth of, of, the ecosystem in which your solution is going to be implemented, right? A lot of times what, and I was, I was on the buyer end of the, of the process for several years, right? What I think 
would really distinguish a vendor from another vendor is that contextual knowledge and to really see how this software fits in not only in the cybersecurity outcomes, but in the broader business um, outcome. And vendors who are able to do that and fuse the cyber outcomes with business outcomes will absolutely stand out. And I think that's, again, um, huge opportunity for the success of products in cybersecurity. I really liked your um, airplane reference earlier. So I used to work in aerospace, so I, I can relate yeah. to it. And yeah. one, one of the things in that um, ecosystem, if you will, when, you're, when you have a new aircraft platform is um, from nose to tail, almost all the components and they're not made by, you know, Boeing or Airbus. Exactly. And it requires um, a lot of coopetition. Um, mm -hmm. It requires, a, you know, all of the um, suppliers and then you have yeah. systems integrators, right, who make those things mm -hmm. work together, whether that's the mm -hmm. Boeing or Airbus or someone else. And um, so you have components, you have subcomponents, and and yep. all of those companies, the players, the pieces and parts, must work together, must have triple redundancy, must not fail, um, and and the level of collaboration required to do that, I think, is a very good model for the cybersecurity yeah, industry. Yeah, absolutely, and even you know. What we also, we went a step further, we actually interviewed NTSB, you know, past NTSB mm -hmm. officials and some pilots. My brother is a 737 pilot, right? He's a commercial pilot. Um, and also the level of training he gets, you know, on the instrument itself, right? He knows exactly how it works because if he's in a situation, it's only his brain and his training that is going to get him an exit strategy. Right. Right. And, you know, think about landing the plane, you know, the plane in the Hudson or even if everything is going fine. Again, how do you distinguish the signal from the noise? And that kind of training is extremely important. One thing also, which I feel like the burnout and stress, Hydrogen Struggles came out with this fascinating um, study just I think it was published last month. Uh, I encourage everybody to read it around the personal risks that CISOs are saying is burnout and stress. They're not worried about their job or breaches. That's their largest personal risk is burnout and stress. And mm -hmm. pilots, um, you know, just you're familiar with the aviation industry, are trained um, on managing mental uh, agility, right? My mm -hmm. brother goes through trainings. His hours are capped. That is not happening in cybersecurity, yet the amount of risk, the amount of stress, and the amount, the, the what's at stake, I feel is equal, if not more. Yeah, I completely agree with you on that. What uh, I have one last question for you. Um, yes. What are the main benefits of design thinking in cybersecurity? Oh goodness, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this question in the context of how we're applying cybersecurity, right? Like I said, um, methods number one. Unless we solve the structural flaws that are in cybersecurity as a discipline, no matter how many tech solutions we put out there, um, it's not going to help us gain the ground that we need to cover right now. The second is the most important one around empowering people to become business leaders, to become strategists, to become problem solvers, and really learn how to reach across those lines and uh, work with each other. And I think that is going to be the catalyzer that we need for really shifting our cybersecurity position um, in the industry today. And the, the last one that I tell everybody also is around um, the NOFAD approach. Right, the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that has festered in the community, um, and almost a sense of powerlessness. Right, if you're applying design thinking, you're training your mind. You're literally creating new neural pathways, and I'm, and this is what I you you accomplish when you're going through the coaching program. 
you're retraining your brain to look at solutions and not get um, bogged down really, or just be impeded by that fear, uncertainty and doubt that is prevalent everywhere. But the goal is how do you hunker down and start solving to your point, the co-opetition, the collaboration that is required within the organization. It's been done in different, you know, different areas before people have turned companies around. I mean, we understand how human humans are made because of the success of the human genome project. We can absolutely do it for cybersecurity. It was wonderful to have you on the show today. I really appreciate you joining us and taking the time out of your day to participate in the Humans in Tech podcast. Thank you, Lee. I appreciate it. If you liked this podcast, please like and subscribe. We drop a new episode every Thursday. The problem isn't security. It's awareness. Velocity Vision is the future of visual surveillance, an intelligent video management solution that delivers real-time situational awareness in an open security platform. Integrate with your existing systems, verify your environment in one pane of glass, and increase the efficiency of your security operation. Get full control of your environment when and where you need it. Learn more at identive.com. Get access control anywhere, anytime, for less money out of pocket. Highly Secure Freedom Cloud is a cloud-based access control as a service offered through a cost-effective subscription model, allowing users to control, manage, and maintain their physical access control systems via Freedom's intuitive, always-up-to-date, browser-based web administration. Learn more at identive.com. Physical security. Identity verification, the IoT. The hyperconnectivity of our lives will only grow more pervasive. As technology becomes more automated and experiences more augmented, it's up to us to preserve our humanity and use new tools and trends for good. The only question is, are we up for the challenge?